They say that nothing essential happens in the absence of noise, and that death and death alone is silent. So it comes as no surprise that in the liveliest borough of a city that never sleeps, hundreds of thousands of noise complaints stream into city agencies each year. And each day, the constant din of noise pollution feels more like a public health crisis than just a minor annoyance. Whether we're working, playing, partying, talking, barking, idling, honking, or just blasting a hole in the street, Brooklynites are making noise. And while some choose to suffer in silence and others voice their concern, our numbers all go to 11 when it comes to Brooklyn's alluring, eccentric, and incomparable surround sound. Today, like all days, we're celebrating sound, its source, its sovereignty, its slap, and its sway. First, an artist seeks solutions to environmental devastation, only to find that the key to our survival in the natural world may be our willingness to listen to it. Then, we scan the supermarket in search of the perfect instrument. Next, we travel back in time and into deep thought on the pre-synth sounds of an audio pioneer. And finally, we get lost on a subway platform, listening closely and waiting for the J. For centuries, we've tried to look upon the world while failing to understand that life is more than meets the eye. It's the music we crank, the engines we rev, the secrets we whisper, the bang, pop, drum, and roars that create us, and all the noise that will continue after we're gone. Headphones up in Brooklyn, USA. Shortly after Adam Brody moved to Brooklyn, he started to miss the routines, sounds, and smells of the farms he'd grown up and worked on around the world. So he started a cricket farm in his studio apartment to fill the void. He watched the wooden box sit quietly in his kitchen for weeks as the crickets hatched and grew inside. And then the chirping started. Here's Adam. At first, they were completely quiet. I didn't really feel their presence in my apartment. I ordered them as teeny tiny babies from a farm in the south that sells them for reptile feed. So I think I ordered 5,000. When they first arrived, I mean, they were very like active and quite cute. They're really cute when they're babies. And then after about five weeks, once they reached a sexual maturity, then like my whole apartment was full of cricket sounds. Once they start chirping, it's just like the whole space changes. My name is Adam Brody, and I am an artist and musician and filmmaker and a cricket farmer. The first box that I made was on the windowsill in my kitchen, and it was a cardboard box above the radiator, which created a nice amount of heat for the crickets because they like it to be quite warm. Since then, I've had them in my bedroom and in every room in my apartment, and most recently I had them by the door. I think my whole apartment building changes. You can even hear them on the stairs, two floors below my apartment. My neighbors haven't said anything, so maybe they just think it's like a white noise machine that makes cricket sounds. In the summer of 2016, I went to work on a farm in Norway. And when I came back to New York, I missed farm life and the farm chores and being connected to animals on a daily basis. And right now there's like been a kind of resurgence of of cultivating and eating insects as a superfood and a solution to climate change. They are a very healthy, nutritionally dense, fiber-rich protein. They also take far less water 
and uh, food as far as uh, other proteins go. My original ambition was to learn enough about farming the crickets in my apartment to the point where I felt comfortable with like renting a warehouse or some kind of space where I would do commercial production of crickets and sell them for people to eat. Then that kind of shifted as I just realized how much I liked being around them and how I wanted other people to have that experience. I had an opportunity to take the crickets to Jordan to do a little residency where I was at an arts organization talking a lot about crickets as a solution to climate change. So I just put small baby crickets into a little tin of peanuts and I just put it into my carry-on and flew to Jordan. (laughs) One of the things that really surprised me in Jordan when I would talk about the environmental and nutritional benefits, most people would say like, yeah, that sounds amazing, but there's no way that people in Jordan would eat crickets. But when people would come to hang out at the farm and just like hear the chirping, they had such a positive response. Even, you know, even after people sat for like half an hour and just like heard them chirping, they developed a connection to them. The interesting thing about sound is that it gives us a more dimensional understanding of, of the world of the cricket. When I really think about climate change, I think so much of it has to do with like not being present with the ecology and our spiritual investment in the planet. The cricket songs are like the real point of entry into all of that. So I got the idea of bringing the crickets into like a public concert venue in New York, wanting to share the cricket singing with people. I was talking with my friend Jude about it. Jude is mostly a percussionist, but she plays lots of little instruments, and we had the idea that maybe we could be performing with them. So we just spent time with the crickets chirping and just imagined like what a four-movement cricket concert would be like. And in the course of the concert, we also added a heating pad to their container. When it's warmer, the crickets chirp much faster, basically. There's like an old farmer's trick even where you can more or less accurately like calculate the temperature by using the pause between chirps. Some of the stuff that we were doing was about mimicking the cricket, and then other things were more about creating textures for the chirps to exist in. And then some of it was more kind of like conceptual, like what does it feel like to be a cricket? Yeah. From my experience, being around cricket sounds feels very calming and therapeutic. In my apartment, at least, I like can't hear the city sounds as much, and it just kind of like creates a really nice aura of calm. And recently, someone reached out to me who um, was diagnosed with a sickness, and they're going to be increasingly homebound, and they reached out to me about the potential for setting them up with a cricket farm to have in their apartment. 
everyone has some sort of positive association with the sound of crickets singing. I read about um, like a long-standing colony of crickets in the Paris metro that people feel very fondly towards. And there was an organization that was even lobbying the city of Paris to declare this one metro stop a national park. And I actually tried to establish a cricket colony in the subway station near my house. I brought them in a bag and then I I imagine that their ideal home would be kind of like underneath the platform because people drop food and they can also kind of tuck away when the trains are coming. So I kind of dumped them onto the edge of the tracks and it didn't work, but I released like 500 crickets <laughs> into the subway station hoping that they would make it nicer. They have like different chirps for different reasons and um, there are all of these things happening with the crickets that I could relate to. Like, male crickets are like battling with one another to see who gets to chirp the loudest. And when one male cricket loses that battle, he experiences some kind of trauma which then prevents him from ever chirping as loudly again. I will hear the courtship chirps. So the males are just saying, I'm here, I'm here. I'm waiting for a female. Occasionally, the sweet chirp of what I'm pretty sure is the post-mating chirp, which the male makes to keep the female close. They're most active at night. It gets like much more, it feels much more communal. It feels like something's happening with like the whole colony. like. A lot of the males are locking in and creating polyrhythms, and then you hear different. It's 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 fantastic. There's what I think of as like a two-week window where the crickets will naturally start dying, and at that point, I carry the whole farm up to my roof and kind of corral them using a variety of low-tech maneuvers that I've come up with. So right now, what I'm doing is just like kind of uh, shaking them into this bag. Put the bags in the refrigerator, which initiates the same kind of state of dormancy that they would go into on a cool night. Then I move them into the freezer, which uh, kills them. I have another one over here. Sorry, buddy. I clean them, and then I roast them in the oven. Oops, lost one. And then host some kind of educational event where I cook them and people eat them. Right now I'm making cricket pancake mix. I think this is the first generation where my interest in their song has... I mean, I'm still interested in the idea of crickets as food, but like right now I'm like, why, why am I harvesting like my house musicians? <laughs> but it's a strange experience to, to end the life of a creature, especially a creature that I really enjoy in life, which I think is good to experience. I think it's so weird that the average person eats like so much flesh of living things and hasn't ever 
experience what it's like to live with that animal and or take its life. Having just harvested them, my apartment feels like, it feels like a dead space right now. It leaves a really big hole in my general experience. I really benefit from there being something happening in my living space that has like nothing to do with me. That is its own kind of like culture and world happening. If I wake up in the middle of the night, I can like tune into what's happening with the crickets. In a world where a lot of people, like me included, are fairly addicted to smartphones, I think I'd be more likely if I was having like mild insomnia to like reach for my smartphone to kind of fill that strange nighttime void. But to have crickets, there is no void. Helica Negron believes that music should belong to everyone, not just those who can afford the expensive instruments and gear it often takes to make. The Puerto Rico-born, Brooklyn-based composer shares her home with a large collection of unconventional instruments and writes music for orchestras, chamber groups, music boxes, toy pianos, pots, pans, dragon fruit, and Romanesco. Here's Angelica. So this uh, I got at the Brooklyn Fleet, and it's uh, the inside of a grandfather's clock. It, it reminded me of a kalimba when I saw it, or something that could potentially make nice sounds, so I just went like this, and I thought, oh, that's nice. But then it's like one of the best surprises of my life was just like hitting this. Uh, so my name is Angelica Negron, and I am a composer. Hello. I've always been really interested in electronic music and I write a lot of electronic music but using acoustic sources and found sounds. I grew up as a violinist in very conservative, traditional um, academia of like conservatory figure scales. For me it was really revealing when I started to hear other sounds that were um, not thought of as musical, but used in a musical context. So I started to explore like pots and pans and things like that. And I love using found sounds too and, and kind of recontextualizing the sound and my love that play of something familiar with something that's um, a little off. Maybe I could tell about the story of the first music box I have. I love the rattly thing too, as well. I remember when I was uh, around three years old, one of my aunts uh, had a car accident and she was uh, killed with her five children. Some more of a percussive thing. I barely remember things from, from that time, I was only three, but I do remember very clearly that my grandma, she took all the toys that belonged to my cousins and she gave them 
to her other grandchildren and I got this strawberry shortcake music box yeah I have tons of different ones for that I've collected from places I've visited over over the years I also like combining two melodies and seeing how like they transform and and also when they break the new melodies that emerge from them My accordions are there too. My violin, which I should play more often. What the hell, Midi? I'm just gonna ignore him and see if he settles down. Where are you going? Okay, Midi. <laughs> um, so it's. It's okay. We can just keep going. Um, and then, ah, oh my God. Now I'm like thinking of noises. As soon as I found out this uh, little controller called Ototo, which is uh, a synthesizer, uh, that lets you make music with anything that conducts electricity. That kind of opened up my world. Hello, we are Dentaku. We would like to introduce our first product called Ototo. It has a, a mini keyboard and it's touch keys and you can plug alligator clips to those touch keys and then whatever you plug, uh, you, uh, you connect with the alligator clip. The alligator clip. When, when you put your you hand put on your it, hand then you complete the circuit and then it triggers the sound. Good job, Midi. I can just press a cauliflower and then it will make a sound that I recorded. You know, food for you. I feel like I need my headphones too, but I left them in the bag. Normally I would have been listening to a RuPaul podcast. On my walk. I try to find vegetables or fruits that match the textures of the songs. Feel lonely without meaty. I do love uh, cauliflower, romanesco broccoli, vegetables that have a design element. I might have an idea of what I want, but then <laughs> it all depends on what I find at the grocery stores. I, I feel that there's a lot of uh, pastel and off-white kind of in the music. Definitely color is, is big, color and texture. Yeah, there's like the dragon fruit is always here, but it's only one really sad one. Ugh. I call it a vegetable synth. I have an idea of what it's gonna look like. And I try to coordinate it so that it all looks like part of the same instrument. This is nice. It's gonna smell really nice. Playing violin and also making electronic music. Those two worlds are very exclusive in their own ways. Oh yes. <laughs> Three. Nice big one. Four. 
I think that's also why I'm drawn to these non-conventional instruments because they're accessible. It's vegetable, so there's like kind of this immediacy of something familiar to people. Oh my God, this song, no. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll cross here. Besides composing, I teach in a lot of education programs. It's not that the kids that I'm teaching that are six years old are, are going to be composers, but for me it's really important that when they're walking to their school, they hear things differently and they start thinking of ideas. There's no silence and even the moments that we think are silence, there's music going on even within our bodies. Bells, which I love, like tap bells, because they're so out of tune, and I can also tap them with my feet. And while I'm thinking how accordion with them, I get different sounds too. Because it, it's all messed up, and it, it's kind yeah, of like I, this is a nice percussion Sound is music and the world around us, it's also musical, a huge musical instrument. Like I have to make it interesting for you. <laughs> Just walking. <laughs> In 1958, the BBC created a new division dedicated to electronic experimentation called the Radiophonic Workshop. It was there that Delia Derbyshire, an early pioneer of electronic music, spent over a decade hand-cutting and manipulating tape into soundscapes, collages, and musical themes. Although she started to phase out of the field as synthesizers rose in popularity, her legacy still reverberates today. Here's Delia. The strangeness of dreams entails that one has to acknowledge that they belong to a different realm in which moral issues have no relevance. This does not mean that dreams are worthless fantasies, on the contrary, or that one should not attempt to think the world of dreams and reality together. So says author Jean-Michel Rabatet in his essay, Toward Dream Ethics. In their contradictory, multi-layered nature, dreams reveal to us a domain where our intentions are nullified and our predictions neutered. While attempts to understand this realm through frameworks of logic are rendered futile, the world of dreams practically begs to be interpreted. Rabatay goes on to note, dream and reality have too much in common to be separated, or worse, made to represent each other, as if one side was the real body followed by its shadow. The Dreams. The Dreams is a collaboration between BBC radiophonic artist Delia Derbyshire and playwright Barry Bermage. Broadcast in 1964, the piece was comprised of cut-up interviews Bermage conducted with ordinary people on the single topic of their dreams. 
These interviews were then stitched together to form a whole and layered over Derbyshire's radiophonic compositions, which act as a musical adhesive binding the disparate voices. Down the street, into a house, through the house, down the stairs, out the back, and I was being chased. And it was a feeling as though the water was coming towards me, and I began to feel very faster and faster. And I ran for all I was worth. My clothes were dragging me back. The dreams exemplify early radiophonic production techniques which follow in the lineage of music concrete. First developed in 1948 by French composer Pierre Schaeffer, music concrete is a form of composition where sound is utilized as a raw material. Said sounds may be derived from a variety of sources, musical instruments, the human voice, and the natural world, to name a few. Tape manipulation techniques were used in the production of these compositions. Recorded sound could be played backward, pitched up or down, cut up or extended, subjected to wobulator effects, echo chambers, and so on. Derbyshire was a true pioneer of these techniques and one of the first radiophonic composers to achieve wide commercial success with their compositions, namely for this weird and wonderful theme tune. Much like the original Doctor Who theme tune, which you just heard, The Dreams is an artifact of sonic mystery. Split up into five movements, running, falling, land, sea, and color, this radiophonic symphony exemplifies the spirit of experimentalism that distinguished the early radiophonic workshop era and demonstrates the breadth of Derbyshire's ingenuity as one of the first electronic musicians. For the purposes of this audio doc, we will be focusing on the first and fourth movements, running and sea, Using collage techniques, the dreams represents the universality of people's darkest fears. When I first listened to this work, the interviews, the imagery being described, the anxiety of these people felt comforting in their familiarity. The central proposition in running is the hunt and the escape. So I run along the corridor and I run up the stairs. And uh, some great monstrous shape walks towards me in the corridor. And I run up the stairs. My legs wouldn't go quick enough. And I keep running and running and running. Running and running and running. Uh, up uh, a big slope. And my legs wouldn't go quick enough. I was running and I was being chased. There was somebody. In sea, it is the threat of drowning. I seem to be drowning. I am going to drown. And I thought, well, it's no use trying to think I'm not uh, going to drown. I am going to drown. And it was frightening and suffocating. In both movements, words no and music combine to create a mutual implication, which is to say the significance of one is mutable according to the adjustments of the other. To be sure, Derbyshire's musical contribution is more than just background sound. Her scores imbue the sentiments of the disembodied voices with a heightened sense of mystery and alienation. The musical introduction to Sea is characterized by soft, muffled tones.
There are no distinct notes, just rounded out timbres swelling into one another, ebbing and flowing, much like the sea itself, from one resonance to the next. But it was a frightening sea. But the harmonic elements of Darvish's score in C stand in stark contradiction to the music of running, defined by a steady andante thudding, underpinning and uniting the diverse array of voices, providing forward-driving momentum to the piece and laying down the sonic landscape over which the first voices are delivered. Let's take a listen to running's introductory bars. I'm being followed and pursued by something. And I could feel that there was somebody behind. I was running and I was being chased. I'm running down the street, into a house, through the house. Down the stairs. Out the back. And I was being chased. Faster and faster. And I ran for all I was worth. My clothes were dragging me back. The first few voices you hear immediately address that they are running away from something, initially an amorphous threat. The paranoid speakers are edited in quick succession of one another, creating a sense of acceleration. Somehow I couldn't stop running. I was running and I fell over the mountain. There's a crocodile chasing me. I was running. There's a crocodile chasing me. I swam as fast as I could to get away from the crocodile. And the crocodile suddenly changed into a lion and then that changed into a tiger. The animals really, I suppose, don't mean to chase me, but because I'm frightened and I run, they follow me up. So I run along the corridor and I run up the stairs. And uh, some great monstrous shape walks towards me in the corridor. And I run up the stairs. My legs wouldn't go quick enough. And I keep running and running and running, running and running and running. Uh, Up uh, a big slope. My legs wouldn't go quick enough. The rhythmic pattern of the thudding takes on a twofold implication, that of a heart beating or footsteps. In running, the fears of the speakers can be characterized as relational, which is to say contingent on the presence of a second figure or entity following or chasing the dreamer. The stairs are wide and stone. I can't go right to the top. I just hide around the second corner. Uh, hoping no one will see me, and then if I hear somebody, I sometimes run down the stairs into the corridor. I'm being followed and pursued by something. I'm never quite sure what it is. Running is dominated by the language of escape, struggle, paranoia. Large stained glass window, and I run down the stairs faster and faster, and the something which is following gets nearer and nearer, and I don't know what it is. I have the feeling that it's something which is about to envelop me in some way. It's just this feeling of being followed. Psychoanalysis would posit that the shadows the speakers describe in running personify everything they refuse to acknowledge about themselves and uh, some great monstrous shape walks towards me in the corridor. All those thoughts and tendencies, shunned in the court of public opinion, coalesce to form a shadowy mass whose identity is unrecognized by the bearer of the dream. It's neither a man or a woman, it's just enormous black shape. It's uh, just a mass, a mass of something matter coming towards me, a great big monstrous-looking mass, not a shape, just filling up the corridor. But it's neither a man or a woman, it's just enormous black shape in the corridor, filling up the corridor. It's a crocodile chasing me. I was running away. 
While sea, unlike running, contains no description of looming, murky figures stalking the dreamers, the dark, hidden depths of the water are equally as sinister. The sea holds particular significance in dreams, revealing the subterranean fears, anxieties, and desires to the conscious mind. Considering the character of the water, its color, and its mood affects the meaning of the dream. Water symbolizes our emotions, and further, what we may be repressing. That many of the voices in sea describe drowning suggests an inner turmoil overwhelming the speakers. It wasn't a stormy sea, but it was a frightening sea. again and I would surface again come up again then I would go down into the water The overall pace of sea distinguishes itself from running in its protractedness. There are broader gaps between voices who speak in a decelerated manner. My clothes were dragging me back. It was very dark and very deep. The tone of the speakers in sea is defined by resignation. Their attempts to resist the urge to drown are rendered futile. And I thought, well, it's no use trying to think I'm not uh, going to drown. I am going to drown. And it was frightening and suffocating. No reflection in the water. I didn't like it. The sea becomes a space of death. And suddenly all this water became full of other people and other things all falling of other people and other things all falling, all going downwards the same as I was, and chairs and tables and things like this. And all these people were all floating downwards through this water, chairs and tables and things like this. And I put my arms up and tried to catch hold of them. And I began to feel very frightened. What both running and sea confer to the listener are the inherently enigmatic qualities of dreams. The phenomena of the dream is both clarifying and abstract in character, vivid and obscure, whole and fractured. To quote Freud in his seminal work, The Interpretation of Dreams, the dream shows how recollections of one's everyday life can be worked into a structure where one person can be substituted for another, where unacknowledged feelings like envy and guilt can find expression where ideas can be linked by verbal similarities, and where the laws of logic can be suspended. How accurately Freud's idea is expressed in Bermage and Derbyshire's Dream Symphony. The disparate voices stitched together to form one cohesive monologue that sounds as if one person could have spoken it. Individual dreams united by recurring symbols, shared sensations, mutual fears. 
We bother to analyze dreams because we know dreams provide the light by which the shadowy landscape of our unconscious, contoured by our hidden desires and private fears, becomes illuminated. Dreams present to us the unadulterated versions of ourselves, stripped of delusion and projection. In sleep, we are presented to ourselves as we are, not as we would like to be. Bermange and Derbyshire's symphony is a testament to the universality of people's darkest fears and unrealized wishes. It reveals to us the ubiquity of our anxieties and reminds us of our obligation to be interconnected. With that, the dreams also confers a second truth, that the sharing of one's insecurities and fears is an invaluable component in connecting us with one another and alleviating the private suffering each of us experience in our waking lives. The dreams makes for a profoundly humanizing listening experience and exemplifies the capacity for experimental electronic musical compositions to masterfully render the human condition. Composer, sound artist, and OG of the avant-garde, Pauline Oliveros coined the term deep listening in 1988. In her book, Sounding the Margins, Pauline gives her readers the following assignment. One, take some time, no matter where you are, to sit down and close your eyes for a while and just listen. Two, do this practice often and until you hear the world as music. Paul Sara, or Sol Para as he's known in Brooklyn's electronic experimental music scene, accepted the challenge.
cold versus the fact that you're still not the jet. Oh. Like the jet. We're still not with the jet. Yeah, today was like, it just has like, I don't know, every, every station I was at, I just go straight down the line. And left that general line of pressure. So I was trying to take the J from there. You gotta see the end, the four stops towards Manhattan instead of going to Bushwick, like towards the east side. I don't know so what I can do there now. Like the J. What's going on with the J? Yeah, today it was like, like the J. Brooklyn USA is produced by Emily Bogosian and me, Sasha Mathias. Thank you to Lena Baxillison, the writer and podcast producer living in Brooklyn, for making a 5,000-piece orchestra. Thank you to Mira Al-Rahim for diving into an ocean of archival audio and fishing us out. Thank you to Solpara for bringing deep listening back to the underground. Thank you to Lindsay Schedule for opening our minds and our ears, and to Emily from before for adapting her Emmy-nominated short film on Angelica into the piece you just heard. And lastly, thank you to Nia Iman-Smith and Paul McGee for dropping by the studio and teaching us bird calls. 
This episode featured music from the DeWolf Music Library. If you like what you hear, think we got something wrong, or just want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, rate and review, or tweet us at Brick Radio. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio. So there's a single cricket who managed to outsmart us as we harvested them. And he's a male, so I think what I'm going to do is just keep him uh, in my apartment, not, not harvest him, so I can have him distill chirp.